We turn today to Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 12 through 18, the great spiritual workout. Philippians 2, starting at verse 12, and we read in Jesus' name. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory Because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you today, and and Lord, for the privilege to open your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would teach us today. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. One of the things that amazes me, and maybe it amazes you as well, a huge number of exercise programs advertised on television. A ton of them, isn't there? There's all kinds of uh, equipment, uh, new ways that you can get a skinnier waist, more powerful biceps, buns of steel, right? And they all made to look so easy, so simple. Men, you see, who've lost 100 pounds, you know, and they're, 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 they're instead of uh, two le- they're in one pant leg from their previous weight before. Women who have lost all kinds of dress sizes. And if you call in the next 10 minutes, it will cost you not 10 easy payments of 79.95, but nine easy payments of 79.95. And that's not all. You'll get a water bottle with your name on it. Just add shipping and handling. Have you seen all of them, haven't you? But if it was so easy to tone our bodies and lose that weight, then why do you find all kinds of exercise equipment at garage sales? And why do you find, like we have before, along the side of the road, treadmills, with a free sign on them, right? All kinds of people have started probably in January, right? New Year's resolutions and they gave up. Why did they quit? It's not an easy thing to do, is it? It is not easy to be disciplined in exercise. Have any of you found that to be true? It can be a challenge. It takes discipline to get a good workout. And for many people, that's Probably the missing ingredient, right? That daily discipline to take care of the body that God has given you. 
I would suggest to you that the same is true spiritually. Many Christians are, are not spiritually fit because it isn't easy. It takes discipline. And Paul puts it this way in our text where he describes what, what I would call a, a spiritual workout. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out. <laughs> work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there's three reasons why we ought to work out. First of all, we need to work out our salvation because God is working in us. Work out because God is working in us. Now, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and in many ways, it was a great congregation. They had responded well to God's word that Paul had given them, but it seems like there was one thing that concerned him a little bit, and that was how were they living their lives now that Paul was not there anymore. Okay, and He addresses that a couple of times in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And then he addresses the same thing in our text again, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now that I'm gone, you need to continue still to follow the Lord. Now, it's important that we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here about salvation. He isn't saying that we are to work for our salvation as though salvation is achieved somehow by human effort. That we can be good enough, that we can do enough good things, that we can somehow by our own effort uh, please God. Scripture is very clear about this, isn't it? That we are saved by the mercy and grace of God. Not of works, so that none of us can boast in what we've done. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And one author says this, Some misguided interpreters completely misread what Paul is saying here, as if it said, work for your salvation or work at your salvation. But both in the immediate context of this letter and the broader context of the New Testament, none of these interpretations is correct. He says, Paul is not speaking about attaining salvation by human effort or goodness, and here's the point, but of living out the inner transformation that God has graciously granted to us. So that's what Paul is talking about. Living out what God has worked in our hearts. That's what he is addressing here. The way that this word workout was used in Paul's day illustrates that point. It was used to describe the mining process of taking precious metal out of the earth. Now, my parents grew up in the copper country of Upper Michigan. Mining was very significant there many years ago. And they would dig out of the earth 
that precious copper metal. Okay, so that's the picture. They, the, the miners didn't put the copper there. God put it there. They were just working out that which God had worked in. And that's the picture then of salvation and Christian living. God has saved us by his grace. And then we live out that which God has done in us. Now notice what he says here. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That might be a little bit surprising. Well, what what do you mean by that? Working it out with fear and trembling. Well, when you think of the opposition we face in living the Christian life, it's understandable that Paul would say that. The devil is constantly tempting us to sin, is he not? The world in which we live, Paul describes it in verse 15, as a crooked and perverse generation. Are we seeing that today? We live in a world that is... is heading downhill rapidly. And then you add to that our own weakness, our own sinful flesh, without a clear understanding of our enemies and how much we need the Lord. It is easy to fall into sin, isn't it? That's why Paul says, for the one who thinks he stands, watch out. Take heed lest you fall. Paul displayed this attitude in his ministry. As he thought of the responsibility that God had given to him to proclaim God's word, he says it caused him to tremble. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, When I came to you, brethren, you in Corinth, He said, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Then he says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Isn't that an interesting description of his ministry there? He says, I didn't come to you with some, you know, wisdom and knowledge like the world. I I was fearful. I was trembling. And you ask, why was he trembling? I think those of us in ministry understand that because there is an awesome responsibility for anyone who stands before a congregation and proclaims God's God's word. Some people say on Friday, it's Friday, like, you know, that's the the, the greatest day of the week. And you know what immediately I think of? I'll tell you what I think. But Sunday's coming. And what do I mean by that? There is a joy in gathering together, right, as we worship to the Lord. I get to meet with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. But it causes me to say, Lord... I need your help. Lord, I I do not want to in any way lead anyone astray. I want to be faithful to your word. And so there's a there's a, a sense of, of fear and trembling. Those steps from that row up 
Here are some of the hardest steps of the week for me because of that responsibility. I know what Paul is talking about. I came to you in weakness and fear and and trembling. That's why I'm very happy to read the next verse. Because when you read verses 12 and 13 together, here's what it says. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sentence doesn't end there. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's just say, thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who is working in me. You are the one that is working within your people, giving them what they need. And notice what he says, both to will or the desire and to carry out his good pleasure. Augustine says, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. (laughs) A good way to put it. God makes us do what... He pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. So God is at work both giving us the desire to live for Him and then also giving us the strength to do that. There was a Buddhist monk who was acquainted with both Christianity and Buddhism. And he was once asked what he thought was the difference between the two. And he said this, the greatest difference is that you Christians know what is right and have the power to do it. Why? Because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what Paul is saying here. We work out our salvation because God is working in us. Notice, secondly, we need to work out our salvation because the world is watching us. You think the world is watching us? People who don't know the Lord, we claim to love Jesus. Do you think they want to know if it really makes a difference in our lives? Or are we just hypocrites, right? They're watching. They want to know, does the Lord make a difference in our lives? And there are many ways in which we can show the world the difference that Jesus makes in us. But I find it interesting in the very next verses, Paul describes one of the ways in which our lives can make a difference, a light to the world. What is it? Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that, here's the purpose, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So what's Paul saying? If you want to be a light in the world, here's one way. Don't be a grumbler. Don't be a complainer. One of the things you will discover as you read through the Old Testament is that grumbling was a common problem with the people of God starting in the Garden of Eden. Do you know that Adam was the first grumbler? Yeah, he was. 
Immediately after he disobeyed God, he blamed Eve for his sin, complaining to the Lord, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. As if to say, if you wouldn't have done this, Lord, you wouldn't have given me this woman, I wouldn't have done this. Complaining, huh? Some years later, his firstborn son, Cain, complained to God that his punishment for murdering his brother Abel was too severe. Genesis 4, verses 13 and 14. Moses complained to the Lord because he didn't deliver the people of Israel from Pharaoh quickly enough. And then you follow the children of Israel uh, through the Old Testament, and it was one thing after another. It was the water, and it was the food, it was the manna, it was the difficulty of the journey. And it's just like, wow, this is a pattern. This is a problem. And it went on and on and on. Well, you come to the New Testament. Have we changed? Well, Paul warned often about this. 1 Corinthians 10.10, he says, You shouldn't grumble as... Some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. James says, don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Peter, 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And so it seems like ever since sin came into the world, we've got a problem. Human nature likes to grumble. I remember some of the sermons my dad preached years ago, and one of them I'll never forget because his outline, he was preaching on growing older gracefully, and I still remember his outline because it rhymed. Keep going, right? don't quit, keep growing, keep glowing, and quit crowing. <laughs> quit grumbling. And I remember him saying, you know, as we get older, he was in probably in his, maybe around my age or something like that. No. As we get older, he said, we tend to grumble more. and We need to be aware of that. It's interesting, the word translated grumbling is one of those words that sounds like it's meaning. And when I tell you what Greek word it is, you probably guess, you can see that, gaguzman. That's not like a grumble. Gaguzman, you grumbler. One author says, Grumbling is a word that sounds like the guttural, muttering sounds that people often make when they're disgruntled. It is a negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointed, disappointing, arising from the self-centered notion that it is undeserved. Grumbling. So it's essentially an emotional response to something that we don't like. It's easy to grumble, isn't it? How many of you have grumbled about the weather this week? You grumblers! Stop it! <laughs> oh man, it's so easy. Yesterday, what, 70 degrees? I'm not going to tell you what the forecast is. I don't want you to grumble during church. Grumbling, boy, it's, it's, it's easy to grumble about the weather. 
Then he uses the word disputing. Grumbling and disputing. It's a little different than grumbling. It's more of an intellectual response to people with whom we disagree. It's used in Romans 14.1 to describe someone who passes judgment on another believer's opinions. 1 Timothy 2.8, it is rendered dissension. And so the disputer is one who loves to argue, even if it's about something that really isn't that important. Are you a disputer? You love to argue? Do you take the opposite side, even if you agree, just because you love to grumble or dispute a little bit? And Paul makes it pretty clear that this is not shining as a light in the world. When we do not grumble, do not dispute, Paul says, you show yourself to be children of God in the midst of this world in which we live in, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So when we have a thankful spirit, people in the world will say, hmm, what makes that guy different? He's not grumbling about the weather, grumbling about this or that. One of the ways to be a light in the world. And Paul was a good example of this, especially to the Philippian church. Because remember how that church started? Paul ended up in jail. He and Silas. They were beaten, put in stocks. And what happened at midnight? Remember? They started singing hymns of praise to God. Imagine the other people in jail wondering, what in the world is going on with you? And the Philippian jailer ended up putting his trust in Jesus. <laughs> they shone as lights. And the reason for that, that was not natural. That was supernatural. That was the work of God working in them to desire as well as to work for God's Good pleasure. The world is watching. And in in ways that maybe we don't even realize. Times that we don't even realize. And that's why we need to live out that what God has put in us. See the difference in in the way that we live. Okay, thirdly, we need to work out our salvation because others have sacrificed for us. Now think of it. God is the one who saves us, right? By His grace. But He almost always, in some way, uses other people in our lives. You you probably think of maybe a parent whom God used in your life. Maybe a Sunday school teacher. Maybe a, a youth worker. Maybe a pastor. Maybe a friend that God used to bring you to Jesus. And and in the case of the Philippians, it was the Apostle Paul. God used him to bring the gospel to them. And I find it interesting how he pictures what he went through to bring the gospel to them. Verse 16, he uses the picture of an athlete, and particularly a runner. Well, that's what he says. He encourages the Philippians to continue holding fast the word of light 
He says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. So Paul is picturing his ministry in terms of running a race. Running. How many of you like to run? Hmm? Let's see, two hands, three hands. You need not only a spiritual workout, you need a physical workout too, don't you? Running. And the, the race he's describing here would not be a 50-yard dash. Now, I hope no one would say, I am so exhausted after a 50-yard dash. If you are, you really need one of those, those uh, exercise equipments along the road. He uses the word toil. He said, I'd run in vain or toil in vain. And that word is, is a strong word. It, it means to labor to the point of exhaustion. So he's describing a marathon, right? His ministry was like a marathon. Any of you ever run a marathon? Okay. What's it like? Are there times when you hit a wall and you say, I cannot finish this race? I mean, I I watched on television this guy. He was, pardon the, throwing up. He was falling down. He was crawling on the ground. He'd get back up again and he finally, finally finished the race. So when I think of a marathon... Wow. If I ever sign up for one of those, would you check me into the hospital or something? Because you'll know that I've really, well, you know, you know I'm losing it, but you know I'd really, really lost it. And so Paul is saying that's the picture of, of what he went through for them. And he said, I don't want to have run in vain or, or toil in vain. And one of the difficult things that Paul often mentions in his writings is there was this concern that those whom he had reached with the gospel would not continue. Galatians 4.11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. When I think of all the people that God has used in my life to bring me to the Lord and to help me grow spiritually, my parents, my my Sunday school teachers, my, my seminary professors, it makes me want to finish well. I don't want them to think that they've labored in vain. That's what Paul is Getting it here. So the picture of the athlete. And then he gives the picture of the of an altar. Look at verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. He is picturing his life as offering it as a sacrifice. As a living sacrifice, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. And so he's describing his commitment to bringing others to Jesus as offering his body on the altar as a sacrifice for the sake of others. 
remember hearing about a chicken and a pig watching the farmer eat breakfast. The chicken said, look at those beautiful eggs. Oh, how the farmer must be thankful for chickens. The pig says, I can't believe you'd say that. Some stingy chicken gave the farmer a contribution, but a generous pig gave his life. Well, he gave his life for that piece of bacon, right? Paul was willing to give his life. And as he ministered from place to place, he knew that eventually the price may be his very own blood, his life. And he was martyred for his faith. But as long as the Philippians continued to walk with the Lord, Paul said, I I rejoice in that. Even if I'm being poured out as a a drink offering upon upon your faith, I rejoice. And he says, I want you to rejoice with me. Look at verses 17 and 18. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. That's quite a statement. Even if it means that I die for the gospel. I rejoice in what God has done in the lives of those to whom he proclaimed God's word. How was Paul able to rejoice? It's basically what he's talking about here. God was working in him, both to will and to do his good pleasure. We read from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, and at the end of that section, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Kind of an interesting description there, right? He says, I, I labored more than all of them. And, and yet, it wasn't really me. It was God working in me. Paul was not a robot. He was not a puppet on a string. He led a disciplined life. He was committed to the Lord. But it's because God was working in him both to will and to work of His good pleasure. And I pray that that would be true in our lives as well, that God would so work in us that the world can't help but see that there's something different about these people, something different in our lives, and that God would get the glory and the praise for all that He has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the work that You do in us. And I pray that the world would see clearly that you are the one who makes a difference in the way that we live, and that you would receive the honor, the glory, and the praise. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.